Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Suzanne Daniel is a Sydney-based author whose first novel, Allegra in Three Parts, has just been published by Pan Macmillan Australia. A journalist and communications consultant with an impressive list of achievements to her name, Suzanne has written one of the most heartwarming, perceptive, coming-of-age stories I've had the privilege to read. Firmly rooted in 1970s Sydney, this novel took me on a delightful journey down memory lane, following in 11-year-old Allegra's footsteps through her final year at a small Catholic primary school, when nuns still played an active teaching role, to the intimidating selective high school she qualified entry to, all the while trying to navigate the trinity of adults tasked with the role of looking after her. Allegra in Three Parts is another exceptional debut from a marvellously talented writer, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome Suzanne to the podcast today. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Claudine. Thank you so much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. I've said it before, but I'm compelled to say it once more. We seem to be in the midst of a golden era for debut Australian novelists. For every remarkable Aussie debut novel I read, there's yet another one waiting in the wings. Our appetite and indeed the global hunger for Australian stories seems to be growing at a rate of knots. Not that I'm complaining, but do you have a sense of why this is happening, Suzanne? Hopefully it's... um Maybe it's a confidence that that we as Australian storytellers um, have grown into. I suppose for so long we looked, um, we we were a little bit coy with our own um, our own experience and, and wondered whether we could even term that as culture. And I think now um, we've we've grown up as a nation in so many ways, and um, and we're quite proud of of our culture and perhaps um, perhaps that's one explanation. But I think you're right. I mean, there does seem to be an appetite, um, not just locally, but, but also internationally for Australian stories and, um, and, and universal stories told through an Australian perspective. And I think for Gen Xers like me, Allegra was highly relatable, despite being only 11 years of age. I mean, she's naive in many ways, yet incredibly astute in others. And I'm wondering how you managed to capture her voice so accurately. Well, I'm pleased that you did find it that way. Um, I really worked hard at it. Uh, my husband will tell you I have a very long memory. So um, even though I'm well well um, into my adult years, I do remember the feeling of being that age. Um, I've also um, raised three children, so I've had a lot to do, um, you know, with with eleven year olds on the way through, and I'm um, an aunt of many nieces and nephews. I'm a godmother of six children. I sit on the board of a of a school. Um, I'm also on the board of a youth development program. So I've had a lot to do with children. I was the eldest of a large family, um, not just my immediate family, but also a great tribe of cousins. So I've always. Um, I don't know I've always had um, a lot to do with with children, and a fascination um, remains with me on what they're thinking and how they see the world. Now, I had the privilege of meeting a mutual friend, a talented author and writer by the name of Lisa Clifford. Um, I met her recently and we were chatting about your book and both of us looked at the opening line of your story. And I have to say, it's one of the best opening lines I've seen in a while. It brilliantly encapsulates everything this book is about. And it reads, 
I am Allegra on one side and Ali down the other. Is that always the way that you intended to open this novel? Um, look, it was the opening line for, for a long time and, you know, and then it follows and sometimes I split myself in two. So I think for me it was a good, it was kind of the true north point on the compass, if you like. Um, once I got that opening line down and uh, it, it pointed me in in the direction of um of of who she was how she saw herself how she related to the world and uh and it, it was a good it was just a good start for me and I've kind of expected I suppose to change it at some point because you don't always stick with your first thoughts obviously I wrote this book over many years so but it did remain and um and and to me it kind of does does wrap up um Allegra uh and and Ali and you know then of course it goes into um she's she's kind of almost seen as different people by others um and she sees herself in different ways according to how she's relating to other people as well so there's some other names apart from Ali and Allegra that that come up in the book as as you will know having read it Indeed. And yeah, absolutely. I've already had the pleasure of reading this beautiful book. But for listeners who haven't, can you tell me a little bit more about it? So it's set in 1970s North Bondi, Sydney, in um, the second wave, during the second wave of the women's movement. And Allegra is an 11 and a half year old girl at the beginning of the book. And it's told through her voice and her perspective. And she's being read by two totally different grandmothers. They live next door to each other, so that's a bit unusual. But the first grandmother, Mathilde, is a Hungarian uh, refugee Holocaust survivor and her version of love is the hot meal on the table every night at 6 o'clock, piano practice supervised, times tables heard. Um, Mathilde does piecework for the rag trade, so she's a seamstress, but she works from home and she is very ambitious for Allegra to become a doctor. She is is you know devoted to Allegra's um, well-being but she's quite stern and austere then literally over the fence through the brown gate next door is Joy and Joy is Allegra's other grandmother and she is um, embracing the second wave of the women's movement she belongs to Liberty Club which is a consciousness raising club. She has a little penny tortoise whom she calls Simone de Beauvoir and she collects every tear that she ever sheds in little glass bottles that she dates and labels. And her version of love is reach your potential, live your true essence, self-actualization. Then out the back above the garage in a flat is Rick and Rick is, um, he calls her Al Pal actually, and he is is Ali's father and um, he's, a, he's a carpenter and a surfie and a really good bloke but he's kind of pushed out by these two strong grandmothers, two strong women and um, Allegra's mother is off the scene and the reveal for that occurs during the book but these three adults in her life cherish her but they don't speak to one another so she has to orbit their three adult worlds so it kicks off from there um, my background being in journalism, I, in fact, interviewed scores and scores of of people generally, but particularly women, about their experiences in the 70s, um, which was a time of huge change. 
Um, so there's there's actually a reimagining of some real events such as the setting up of the first women's refuge that happened in Glebe and a whole lot of other things. But um, it, it is a novel, so so it is, it's a work of fiction, but deeply researched. Was there any one particular event that inspired you to write Allegra's story? Uh, look, some time ago, probably, probably 10 years ago or so, my eldest daughter, um, who was still in her teenage years, said, I don't think I'm a feminist. Um, you know, I like to dress up. Uh, you know, I, anyway, we had quite the chat because at that time, 10 years ago, feminism was kind of off the agenda a little. Mm. And, um, and so we, we, we sat down, we had a big chat and I kind of explained to, to my eldest daughter that, you know, what, what life was like before, well, the second wave of the women's movement. I mean, you know, of course there were other waves before that and suffragettes before that still. But, you know, what what life was like for women and why those women at the time during the 70s um, had to take the steps that they did and that many of the benefits that we live with today um, are as a result of the, the courageous, brave, um, and, and, you know, the camaraderie between those women too. And also I wanted to let my daughters know, I have two daughters um, and a son in between, but I wanted them to know um, the history but also the importance of remaining ever vigilant and keeping keeping kind of the march going as well. So I guess that was one one source of inspiration, just also a fascination with that time because there was so much happening. Um, it was such a fascinating period in history. Uh, and not just for women who were, you know, marching in the streets, but women that were in, in the kitchens, um, raising children, going back to education when Gough Whitlam made education free in the 70s. Women went back in droves, women that had been denied a tertiary education often because, you know, the money in a family would only go so far. So the boys got the tertiary education and the women, you know, didn't. And many women, older women today, are still very bitter about that. Um, so, yeah, that was one source of, of inspiration. And another for me, I guess, which was born out of having so many children around me in my life, was just um, that idea of a child's emerging identity and how you know i'm sh i'm sure lots of people can relate to this you when you're part you know part of a family as a kid and you look around you and you see so many different examples um within your own family of traits personalities worldviews and kids you know they they'll often look around and go well who am i like because gosh if i'm like her i can't be like her and and yet you know they're two aunts or two grandmothers or you know my my own mother and, and her sister. So, you know, and for boys, obviously, um, you know, different different ideas there too. But I just think that for kids, what happens to their emerging sense of identity um, is, is an interesting idea when there's not just difference, um, different perspectives in a family, but also differences within a family and conflict within a family. You've bookended your novel with two quotes from the famous feminist writer and novelist Simone de Beauvoir. And I think it's fair to say, as you've you know, just described, that Allegra's story is flavoured significantly by the period in which it's set, um, a time when there were a few 
and protections for workers, especially women workers, when women still didn't have the freedom to control their reproductive choices or proper and safe access to abortion, when there was also very little support for women and children who suffered domestic violence and abuse at the hands of their partners and fathers. So how important was this feminist thread to Allegra's story? Look, I think it was very important. Um, although I wanted to introduce it gently, yeah. um, I didn't want to, you know, hit readers over the head um, with it. I wanted to, it to almost bubble up in the consciousness of readers the same way as it does for Allegra in the stories because it is told through her perspective, so it is through the eyes of a child. Um, so, but it, it, it is, it, it started as being important to me and it actually only ever grew in importance. Um, so by the time I finished the book, which was written over many years, um, and by then feminism, of course, um, with the Me Too movement and, and, um, and all that's happened in the last 18 months, two years was very much back on the agenda. So, so the timing, um, was, was, you know, something that was, kind of fortunate in many ways but interesting as well. I was thinking about this aspect of your book and reflecting on the way Allegra learns about the about violence against women and, and what it does to families and kids and it seems to me that although there might be more awareness of domestic violence as an issue in our society sadly it's still a very prominent issue in Australia so you know it, it is as you say it, it's almost timely um, despite how far the women's women have come and the movement um, we're still facing those same kinds of issues yeah we are which is which is heartbreaking on one level but what is encouraging is that in the 70s for women that were living with domestic violence um, there was absolutely nowhere for them to go mm. if they finally had the courage or even the opportunity to get away, um, the, only, the only places that would take them were um, places like Salvation Army sh shelters that were mixed, so they had men and women. Um, so you can imagine if you're fleeing a domestic violence situation with um, a couple of small children, to be thrown in with some men um, who are down on their luck would be, you know, not the best circumstances to find yourself in. And they were tipped out first thing in the morning and not allowed back in until the evening. Mm. So, again, if you've got a couple of small children and no money in your purse, what do you do all day? Mm. So at least um, now, because of the actions that these women took in the 70s with setting up the first refuge, which was in Glebe, Elsie, um, which was, you know, set up quite almost spontaneously, actually, um, run by women for women, where they brought in legal services, health services, social services. So many women um, and, and children at that time who have since grown up have nominated, you know, that as being a real turning point in their life. Um, and I think there's, there's a level of awareness now. Previously, people wouldn't even discuss it. Women wouldn't even admit to one another what they were living with. Domestic violence wasn't recognised by legislation as a crime. Police would refer to it as just another domestic. Mm. Uh, so, look, I know that we we still um, are very saddened and disheartened by what's happening, but I do believe there's an awareness. Um, well, there's definitely an awareness. I think we'd all agree with that. And change afoot. Um, and options, at least there are options for women. But we have to stay vigilant we have to stay um, determined to go to the root cause of these things as well, not just provide the services for those that find themselves, you know, in dire 
die straight. Tell me about Whiskey Wendy and your inspiration for her character. So, look, she was partly inspired by um, a woman when I was researching what was happening in the 70s. um, I came across um, a woman called Bessie Guthrie, who apparently kind of showed up when when people like Anne Summers and Diana Beaton, who I, uh, Diana Beaton was a great help to me. She was um, a young feminist in the 70s and a friend of Anne's. And she was in fact there on the day that they they um, burst into what were squat houses in Glebe and set them up as what became Elsie, the women's refuge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apparently they were meeting, you know, as as a group of women, young feminists, they were meeting and speaking about, you know, equal pay and opportunity and, and various um, issues at the time. And Bessie just showed up and she was a, an older woman. She was actually, I think, in her 70s. And apparently she announced, I've been waiting for you girls to, you know, get yourselves organised. Mm-hmm. Um, so she had been in Glebe for many years. I think she'd worked in a variety. She, she'd never married or had her own family, but she'd worked in a variety of, um, of industries, um, including publishing. And apparently her house was a bit of an unofficial refuge. So women, young women, um, they called them often homegirls, girls that had ended up because they were considered to be some girls, um, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, because of the difficult circumstances they were living in and often, you know, they were sexually abused within their own families or their own families hadn't cared for them or hadn't had the means to care for them, they were deemed to be, um, you know, in, in moral danger and so they would be put into homes um, and they were called home girls. Uh, and, you know, they'd often escape these places. It just seems so brutally unfair. Mm. Um, but Wendy would provide refuge for them. And apparently there was a back entrance to her house off a lane uh, in Glebe. And there was a, a notice board. And so these girls could write messages for one another. Of course, it was all pre-mobile phones. Um, <laughs> and so they could write messages for one another. And, and um, Wendy, Wendy, you know, was just that harbour for them. So that was that was a little bit of um, the inspiration for whiskey. Not Wendy, I'm sorry, Bessie Guthrie. Um, that was a bit of inspira- you know, a kernel of inspiration. Of course, it's a, again a reimagining um, of of you know her character, and so I've just taken some of the threads of that and put put it into Whiskey Wendy. You paint an uplifting picture of the importance of the sisterhood and for women to have a community of other women to lean on in times of need. Do you think that that was easier to achieve back in the 70s as compared with today, say when women's participation in the workforce is much higher? Gosh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, you know, neighbourhoods obviously were... Um, full at the time of women at home and the barriers between neighbours I think were were not what they are today even the physical barriers you know I suppose I remember where I grew up like we didn't really have fences between our neighbours and we all scampered as children you know around the neighbourhood in and out of each other's homes and, and our mothers all got to know one another really well um gosh I I, I don't want to say that it's not, you know, that we don't have communities today and the sisterhood isn't flourishing because I think in many ways um, we've created community through different um, avenues. 
But I don't think it happens as organically, perhaps, as mm. it may have at the time. We've got to work harder to do it. I think it's something very much um, that we should shoot for. Now, Sister Josepha, a wonderful character. Um, she reminded me of a nun who taught me at my primary school. And as we were talking about just, just before we started recording, I actually also went to a small Catholic school and um, was encouraged uh, to sit the selective schools exam um, and ended up going to Sydney High. So I ended Incredible. up <laughs> – I, I really related to Allegra and, and her journey um, from that small Catholic primary school and, you know, being influenced – and being taught and nurtured by the nuns um, uh, to her success at uh, a selective school. So, yeah, Allegra's story is actually quite personal to me. I just find that amazing, (laughs) absolutely amazing. And I promise we didn't speak before I wrote this book, did we, Claude? No, we definitely haven't (laughs) spoken before today. An amazing coincidence. Um, And I wanted to say about Sister Josepha, and of Sister Jo Mary, who was the nun in my life at the time, um, both were very dedicated women who took their role as an educator very seriously. So I wanted to know, was Sister Josepha modelled on somebody you knew? I was also taught by nuns and um, and I only ever had great experiences um, in my education with nuns. And the, the senior school I went to particularly, um, it was run by the Sisters of the Society of the Sacred Heart. So in Sydney and those nuns were just incredible and they did teach me in the 70s and I you know I found them amazing at the time but when I look back that that amazement only only grows because the change that those women were living with um was a time when a lot of people a lot of women were actually leaving um leaving the convent leaving the nunnery um and, you know, they would have found themselves educating um, young women who had totally different views to what they would have expected them to have had when they trained to become nuns. And we were encouraged. We were, um, we, you know, there, was, there were no limits that they imposed on us in terms of the way we saw our future. I often say they saw the good in us before we saw it in ourselves. Um, they, they just propelled us towards, um, you know, seeking truth, seeking social justice, uh, empowerment. And in my acknowledgements at the end, I say that they really were um, a big unsung component of the sisterhood. When you think about a community of women who um, who educated other women, but other orders of nuns were setting up hospitals, were setting up uh, social services, were ministering to the poor, to prisoners, you know, really, I think um, nuns have played such a huge role in the development um, and the progress of Australian society. And I don't think they've received nearly the credit that they deserve. Um, pleasingly, a beautiful nun who I know, um, Sister Mary Shanahan, has just received in her 90s an OAM for her, her just just gone just in these most recent um, Queen's Birthdays list honours um, for her role in education and mentoring young women. Um, so she's a much-loved sister of the Society of Sacred Heart who educated me and my children and my daughters. Um, and I think with what's happened with the Catholic Church and the revelations in you know recent times, which have been absolutely heartbreaking and, of course, need to be um, dealt with, and everything needs to be done to ensure that, you know, the risk of that happening to other children, you know, 
just doesn't happen again. Mm. Um, but really when you think about the level of um, contact that nuns have had with children over the years, um, you know, not much has come out um, in that way, pleasingly. Um, and I, I just, I'm, I'm a big fan of nuns. How much about your writing journey was influenced by being a journalist? Look, I think a lot. I, I went into being, uh, I went into journalism because I love creative writing. Um, but of course, you can't do too much creative writing as a journal. <laughs> You'll get sued. Um, and then I sort of ended up, um, anyway, but the way life turns out, I kind of ended up being pulled away from mainstream journalism. Um, but I was always doing, you know, creative writing courses in my spare time um, and kept thinking when the, the time was right, I would love to write a novel. Um, and, of course, there's no ever right, you know, you've got to make that time. So I was just sort of writing um, as a hobby, I suppose, um, in the spare time that I had, which wasn't a lot, raising a family and working and, um, you know, dealing with everything else life throws at you. Uh, but what was pleasing for me with the experience of writing this book, because in a way it's a historical fiction, was I could draw on my journalistic skills. So a lot of um, interviewing, a lot of research, uh, which, you know, of course I, I trained for as a journo, um, then allowed me to um, underpin my creative writing with that. Uh, so it was great. I could kind of, I suppose, plug into both sides of um, what I'd always loved. Now, your description of Matilde's Hungarian cooking was mouth-watering. Um, her strudel <laughs> making was a revelation. Uh, I wanted to know, was this born of your own baking skills or were you inspired by somebody else? Well, uh, look, I love cooking, really, really love cooking, and I've certainly done a lot of it over the years. I haven't done a lot of Hungarian cooking, I have to say. Um, so, again, I really enjoyed the research of Hungarian recipes and watched lots and lots of YouTube videos <laughs> on um, the strudel making particularly. Yeah. Um, I've never been a big baker. I'm more of a savoury cook. But after um, I wrote that scene, I decided, and we'd, you know, I'd finished the book, I decided, okay, I have to have a go at making the strudel. So for those that haven't read the book, there's there's a scene where Allegra's making a, a, a Cherry, a Morello cherry strudel with Matilda, and it involves spreading the great big kitchen table with a bed sheet, and um, and you you sort of uh, work at the pastry um, after it's been kneaded. You and, and you have to throw the dough a hundred times oh, from shoulder incredible. height into the bowl, <laughs> and then you work it out very, very gently um, with after you've put the palm of your hands under the pastry and you work it out, work it out gently, gently, gently round the edges till it comes out as a great big, very thin, um, you know, flat pastry. Um, and then you you put the filling across it and use the bed sheet by lifting it up and rolling, rolling, rolling the pastry around the Morello cherries. Uh, anyway, I saw it done um, on YouTube videos by these very experienced Hungarian older women. And I thought, okay, got to have a crack at that. So a few weeks ago, um, I got some cousins together and their daughters and my own daughters. And we put on Franz Liszt and we made that strudel. We threw the dough a hundred times 
there was lots of laughter and, um, you know, that it worked. And we sat down and, and we ate the, tr- the strudel. And I have to say it was delicious. So now that Allegra in Three Parts is on the shelves, are you working on anything else? Pan McMillan have signed me for a second novel. It actually won't be um, a continuation of that same story because um, once you read the book, it, it kind of doesn't lend itself to a sequel. Um, but I, so, so I am, I'm working on a totally different story. Um, it's very early days because uh, I had to also do a complete, I thought I'd be further advanced by now actually, but I had to do a completely different edit of Allegra for the American market because it was picked up over there by a different editor, a different publisher. So that's taken some time. Um, But it is a story that I find quite inspiring. It's a very different story. Um, And I'm looking forward now to, um, yeah, having as much as I've absolutely loved being in Allegra's world, it has been a long time. And so I'm looking forward to... um, giving her a rest and and getting some other characters um, into my mind and, and working with them and seeing where they lead me. How fabulous that you've been picked up in the US. Yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. So um, when, you know, look, I never thought I'd be published at all, Claudine. I really thought Aww. this would just be something found in my post-funeral cleanup, Aww. as I think I may have mentioned to you before. But I, I just, yeah, the whole thing has rolled out so um, in such an unexpected way for me. So the fact that I was picked up in, in Australia was a blast and it ended up going to a little mini auction, which blew my mind. And just as I was recovering from that, my agent called me. In fact, I was literally recovering at a yoga retreat and I wasn't <laughs> meant to be on the phone. And she called me and she said, are you sitting down? I said, I'm actually scampering around. I'm not meant to be on my phone. I'm meant to be in Downward Dog. And she said, well, just get a load of this. You've been picked up by Knopf, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House for the US and Canada. And I just, I had to say to her, look, just think that's a bit of an overreaction it's not that good and um she laughed she said I've never had an author say that to me before in the face of that sort of news but that was how I felt and um anyway I was kind of then recovering from that and it was picked up by um UTA which I didn't know but it's United Talent Agency in LA um with a view to, you know, book to film. So I went and met with them in April and that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. But my agent tells me and I can see why that's the wrong game. You know, they, um, the, the lady I spoke with there had signed a deal that morning that had taken her four years to, oh, wow. to bring about. So, yes, it's, it's, if that happens, you know, my goodness, but I'm certainly not, um, not going to be sort of banking on that one. But uh, it was a lot of fun to go there and meet. And we nev- you never know what might happen. For all these aspiring writers out there who listen to this podcast, take note. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I, I think if you've got a book in you, if you, because a lot, a few people, quite a few people have said, you know, I think I've got a book in me. And I go, well, make it your job to get it out of you. Yeah. Because, you know, I really think if this can happen to me, it can happen to you. And it's a matter of chipping away at it, like making the space in your life where even if it's an hour a day, and, um, and initially, you know, it took a little bit of self-discipline to to sit down at the desk every day and write. But in the end, it got such momentum um, for me. It was the, the, the greater discipline was actually to walk away from it, you know, once I'd put my, my hour, which became hours, mm-hmm. in. 
Um, but yeah, look, I think there's some amazing stories out there and very talented people who haven't put those stories down yet. Um, I want to encourage younger writers, of course, but I really want to encourage older writers because for me, I sometimes think, oh, I should have got cracking with this earlier, this this write, novel writing thing. But I don't think I would have had the layers within me to write this book earlier in my life. Yeah. And people have said, you know, there's a lot of layers in this book. And I think those layers are there because of the years I've lived. Yeah. So I think, you know, older writers um, should be encouraged enormously. Suzanne, if listeners wanted to find out more about you and your books, where can they find you? Well, let me just look this up at the front of my book. I've <laughs> been um, a conscientious objector up until very recently with regards to social media, I have to admit. Um, but my agent and publisher told me, no, nope, on you go, you've got to embrace it. So here we are. So you can visit suzannedaniel.net. Um, so that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L.net. Um, and I'm also on Facebook, Suzanne Daniel Author, and Instagram. So, yeah. And I'm actually going to take put up some photos um, quite soon of that strudel making, that, that, that episode of strudel making that we enjoyed it in my home. Oh, fantastic. I'd love to see those pictures. I wanted to thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books and I wish you every success with this beautiful novel. Thank you. Thank you so much. And listeners, a copy of this debut novel is up for grabs, courtesy of Pan Macmillan. If you want to be in the draw to win, you know what to do. Head over to my Instagram or Facebook account and follow the prompts. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.